Well, good morning, beloved. It is certainly, again, my privilege and pleasure to come before you and open the word of life to us and to see what God has for us. If you don't happen to know me, just let me introduce myself. My name is Alan Reeb. I'm one of the lay elders here at Restoration Road. I'm asked occasionally, well, what's the difference between a staff elder and a lay elder? Um, well, quite simply, the, the staff elders get paid for being good, um, and the lay elders are just good for nothing. <laughs> well, here's someone who's good for nothing to present this wonderful chapter 3 of Proverbs to us this morning. Um, when Pastor Mike asked me to do Proverbs chapter 3, I said, of course, I would love to and, and be privileged to do that. And then I read it, and I was just a little bit overwhelmed. There is so much content here. There's so many wonderful verses that we're familiar with and maybe others that we need to be familiar with. Um, I remember Pastor Mike in his series on the uh, man of sorrows, king of glory, he did the whole life of Christ in one sermon. So I thought, well, if he can do the whole life of Christ in one sermon, I can do the third chapter of Proverbs in one sermon, so we'll try. But it's going to be a roller coaster this morning, so hang on, we've got a lot to cover. Just in way of, of preparation, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on some of the major themes that are being developed in this book of Proverbs, as well as the whole of Scripture. There is a constant, const, consistent conflict in Scripture that's revealed from Genesis through Revelation. And that's this conflict of the world versus the word. Or as the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says, the wise versus the foolish. Or those with understanding versus those without understanding. It's what the world thinks versus what God thinks about many important things. And we need to answer those questions about who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to allow to formulate our worldview? What are we going to be drawn to? What goes into making good, right, God-honoring decisions? Oh, how we need the book of Proverbs. Oh, how we need to be governed and ruled by God's wisdom. The newest and most popular secular social prophets today echo an ancient myth. They proclaim loudly that, well, mankind is really basically good. Even when we do bad things, we have a good heart. And if we just give us ourselves enough time, if we just allow enough progress, that we can fix everything that's wrong with the world if we only come together and work cooperatively. The Bible just happens to say the exact opposite, doesn't it? Mankind, according to Scripture, is bad and it's getting worse. It's, this describes our hearts as being fallen, corrupted, or depraved. Secular wisdom's salvation goes along these lines. Well, the solution to our problems is that we need to get rid of old-fashioned, outdated morality and ancient customs. In a word, we need to get rid of, or sideline, religion. We need to redefine, then, marriage and gender and human nature and sexuality and sin among other things. Try posting something conservative about marriage or traditional morality on any of the, the social media sites and you'll immediately receive backlash. That's not tolerated. That's not accepted. That's not to be heard. Get rid of God's word or cancel it in today's nomenclature and then God's people wouldn't stand in the way of our achievement of our full human potential. So goes the myth. The book of Proverbs presents an absolute collision with that worldview. It says that God's solution to man's problems are not man's solutions. Proverbs in the Bible throughout say that God is in fact good. 
We are the ones that are bad. Genesis 1 and 2 shows a beautiful picture of the original created order. God, out of nothing, created everything. And when he was finished, he said, it was good. And then he created mankind and said, it was not just good, it was very good. And then he turned over the car keys to this new creation and we chose to drive it into a ditch and set the thing on fire. Genesis 3 comes along and the world is just turned upside down. Everything has gone cattywampus and gone backwards. And it'll take the whole of the 66 books of the Bible until we get to Revelation. The last two chapters in Revelation, everything is made right again. But we find ourselves in that middle section where things are wrong and we need to figure out, well, how did this happen? If we surmise that, well, it's God's fault, actually that's what Adam said, isn't it? The woman that you gave me, she's the one that enticed me he blamed the blame game. He said it was God's fault for the problem that we have. If it's God's fault, then we are the solution. But if it's our fault, then God's solution is what we need to listen to. The Bible says that we are the problem and that God is the solution. You see, the biggest problem in the world is us. The biggest problem with my life and with your life is you. That's what is standing in the way. But the world says, no, 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 no. Give us enough time and we will evolve out of our problems into utopia. It'll be solved and we are getting better all the time. Well, certainly technology is advancing and we are receiving the benefits of discoveries and advancements in electronics and medical advancements and, and we can send men to outer space and live for long periods of time, there are certainly benefits technologically. But if we're honest, all of these advancements are purely external. Nothing internal is advancing. In fact, I would go out on a limb to say, I don't think there's ever been a time in world history where man has been capable of greater evil, greater wickedness than currently. What happened to that young 18-year-old in Buffalo that went into a supermarket? What hatred filled his heart? It's hard to imagine. It's hard to comprehend the darkness within his heart. We can give a cell phone to a 10-year-old and say, oh, this is a wonderful thing that we can give our, equip our kids with. Now they can communicate with it, we can know where they're at, and we can call them home for dinner whenever they want. You know the information available in that phone that you give to that 10-year-old? My goodness, it'll stagger the mind. I had a neighborhood bully when I was growing up, so I know what bullying is like, but that was just one character in the neighborhood. Today, bullying can happen on that cell phone, and it's exponential. That, that intimidation, that, that taunting, it goes into the heart of a 10-year-old. And we say, well, they'll get over it. I don't know that it's that simple. Proverbs comes along, and it has some things to say about the way that the world is and some of the solutions that it can give us. I have a confession to make. For years, I looked at and thought of the book of Proverbs as basically a Christian's Aesop fables. Cute little stories with a nice moral. You know, like the boy who cried wolf or um, the mouse and the lion or uh, the tortoise and the hare. There's a good little story here and, and a good moral to learn and it's great for kids. And I used to think the book of Proverbs was a little bit like that. Cute little sayings, nice little things to put on a wall hanging or embroider on a towel. You know, nice, nice little sayings and usually relegated to, well, that's Sunday school material. I don't think that anymore. I have come to grips and been convicted with my approach to this book. And I have realized anew that there's some significant things here that we need to deal with. Pastor Nate, when he spoke a couple of weeks ago, focused our attention on chapter 1, verse 8, and one word in particular. In the ESV, it's translated here. But he made this comment. He said, 
it's an imperative verb. And here is just maybe a little bit too easy of a translation. Maybe it should be translated, Stop! Listen! Pay attention! There's a force behind that word early in this book that draws, that captivates our attention and focuses like a laser beam on what this Solomon is saying to us. Don't deal with it tritely. Don't deal with it haphazardly. Don't deal with it superficially. Stop. Take this stuff to heart. This is life. This will affect your life. This will honor God in your life. This is stuff to listen to and pay attention to. A wise sage in Hollywood said this, In life, all good things come hard, but wisdom is the hardest to come by. Lucille Ball. I know many of you youngsters don't know who that is. <laughs> Look at it. You can Google it and find out. Um, but she made a wise statement. She realized that wisdom is very difficult. A very successful, talented person says wisdom in life is hard to come by. We need to pay attention when Solomon says to listen and stop. It's like taking a drive. On a beautiful day like today, you might be tempted to be, take a drive up the Mountain Loop Highway. And you're driving along and enjoying the colors, enjoying the sun, enjoying the Stillaguamish River. And all of a sudden, you see an orange sign on the side of the road that says road construction ahead. Well, you've got a choice. Maybe you say, oh, <laughs> it's not right. No, uh, not today. No, no one's, no, nothing to worry about here. Keep going. Pretty soon you come across another sign that says, Flagger ahead. Well, no, still, not on a day like today. Things are too beautiful. I'm in such a great mood. I'm not going to be bothered or inconvenienced by that. Next sign, Flagger ahead. Be prepared to stop. Now, you just go on with life, ignoring the warning signs, and pretty soon you see someone in the middle of the road waving frantically the stop sign. What are you going to do? Do you obey? Do you stop? Do you value your life? Or do you go on barreling through, come hell or high water, as they say, and say, it doesn't matter to me. It's all only for somebody else. It's just a suggestion. No. Stop, beloved. Realize that the warning signs along the side of the road are for our benefit. Realize that our lives will be ruined if we live a fool's life. That's the message that you see throughout this book, a wonderful book of Proverbs. He compares and contrasts these different worldviews, these approaches to life, to remain a fool, to remain simple, to remain ignorant, or to pursue godly wisdom with understanding and insight because God is our creator, as we will see, and he knows how we are made. Let's look at the, at the third chapter of this wonderful book of Proverbs. And I've outlined it, and I hope you can follow my outline that I've put on the overhead. We're going to go awful fast because there's a lot, of, lot to cover. This first section, verses 1 through 10, Solomon begins by saying, My son, so I've entitled this, My son, walk rightly with God. And the way we do that, first of all, is by rightly valuing his word. Verses 1 through 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Solomon personifies this. He says, my teaching, my commandments. Well, I think it's just an artistic way of Solomon saying, it's really not just my commandments, but it's God's commandments. It's God's teachings. It's Jehovah God, the creator of the universe. Understand and don't forget these important precepts in your life. Let your heart, that's an important word. It's going to be repeated several times. Why is it important? Because if it was merely external, if Solomon or Jehovah was just putting up a list of rules to follow, well, that's easy. Anyone can do it. I grew up in a rather religious home that rules of what to do and what not to do, mostly what not to do. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. It was mostly defined by what I didn't do. You're not supposed to do much. 
Well, if my Christian life was defined by what I'm not doing, you know who the most spiritual people in the, in the city are? They're out there in the Gar Cemetery because they're not doing a blooming thing. But if we can define our Christian walk by what we're capable of doing, what we want to do, well, that's different. That's different. Here Solomon says, let your heart, focus on your heart. There's something internal that's going to change. Something internal that I want to affect, not just mere externals. How do you know if your heart's being affected? When it turns from a have to to a want to. When you want to go to church and fellowship with believers. When you want to sing praises. When you want to study scripture. When you want to be involved in other people's lives in a small group. When you want to fill in the blank. That's an incredible transformation in the Christian life. When it goes from have to to want to. If you've never experienced that, pray for it to happen. Life is grand in the Christian life when you want to glorify God. Not have to glorify God but you want to. Solomon is instructing him, let your heart keep my commandments. Solomon's father David wrote Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the book of Psalm. And if you haven't meditated or read on it in a while, I would encourage you to just look at it this week. It's a wonderful psalm that just explains the beauty, the appeal, the value of God's word. This is the written form of God's revelation to us. And David valued it like gold and silver. He wore it like an adornment on his head and around his neck. And it talks at length about the way that David chose to value Scripture. That's how God has revealed himself to us. He could have gotten a YouTube channel or a podcast or gotten a TikTok channel. He could have chosen any number of ways to reveal himself. But he chose through the written word, the Bible. That's how we get to know who our creator is. And so here Solomon is saying, my son, don't forget God's teachings. Let your heart be transformed by his commands for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. I don't think that is so much a promise for dying a grand old age. <laughs> I think it's more of an influence that will outlive us. What Solomon is saying that if you're dedicated to God's word, and pursue his commands and transform your heart, your influence, your significance in the lives of others will be long-lasting. I'm going to conclude today's talk by talking and, and telling you about three English priests. You may not know their names, but I guarantee you that you are the beneficiary of their actions. Their influence long-lasted their lifespan. I think that's the intent of what Solomon is wanting to say here. And he adds that word peace, shalom, they will add. What good is a long life if God grants us many years? What good is a long life if it's not peaceful? It's torture. But a long life lived with peace, ah, oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That's what's available to us. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. The word steadfast love and faithfulness there's, these two go together like, you know, good and plenty, good and plenty. I, I know that's an old candy that you might not remember, but, you know, the two colors go together. F steadfast love and faithfulness. Your translation might have mercy and truth. These were two of God's attributes that the psalmist constantly put together. Pursue them, understand them, accept them, follow them, realize them. David says in Psalm 25, all of the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, are mercy and truth for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. Psalm 23, surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. 
These two highlighted, they're not the only attributes of God for sure, but they were used in such a way that they kind of encapsulated the whole benefit of following and pursuing God. These things don't forsake. Understand them. Put them so much around, you know, bind them on your neck. Bind them. Lock them. The word is for a, a chain and a lock. Lock them around your neck and put them on a tablet of your heart. Don't forget the character of the God that we serve. Don't forget the character and the, and the value and the virtues of the God that we worship. Understand them. Know them. Don't forsake them. Don't forget them. Don't neglect them. The result is you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The Old Testament is full of stories. If you were to stop to think about it, Moses, Joseph, David, Esther, Ruth, Nehemiah, David, amongst many others, men who were not perfect, women who were not perfect, but followed God single-heartedly and their influence in a pagan culture, in a pagan land, was good. They had great respect and great rapport amongst others in their culture that did not align themselves with their worldview. That's what I think Solomon is talking here. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And not success as we always define success. We will see a story in a little bit of three men that had a hard life. Their life ended tragically, painfully, but their life was overwhelmingly successful because that's God's view of perspective. That's God's perspective of our life. When, his, when he's glorified, our life is successful. So Solomon tells the, the, his son, as he's identified here, Walk rightly with God by valuing his word. Secondly, walk rightly with God by truly trusting him. Verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own, own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You've heard these two verses numerous times in your Christian life. In fact, this last 10 days, I think I heard three different times in podcasts or things that I was listening to on the radio where this verse was mentioned in the context of the talk that I was hearing. It's ubiquitous. It's quoted. Everyone, you probably have it memorized. You have a wall hanging needlepoint with these verses on. You have a mug with the scripture on the mug. Maybe a towel, whatever. It's, you, wallpaper has it on. I, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And when something becomes so common, we sometimes don't take it seriously. We don't understand its seriousness. Trust. The word trust, verse 5, the word literally translates, should be defined to lie helpless face down. It's used of a servant or a slave before their master receiving instructions. It's used of a defeated soldier prostrate on the ground before a conquering general. That's the word trust. Maybe could be translated rely upon, submit to, depend on. Trust in the Lord with all your, here's that word again, heart. It's not external obedience. It's not checking off, all right, prayed, gave, tithed, say. No, it's your heart condition. It's what your heart is drawn to. It's what your heart, the core of your being, what your spirit listens to, what your spirit responds to. That's what he is saying here. Trust God with your whole heart and don't lean on your own understanding. That also has, I think, been misinterpreted. You mean my understanding? My, the whole of my understanding is just to be sidelined, it's to be canceled, it's to be, it's to be forfeited? Is, is my understanding really that wrong? I don't think it's a whole, whole approach like that. Certainly, your understanding, my understanding, is fraught with sin. We can't avoid it until we're glorified. We have to deal with it. It's there. 
It affects us. So some of our understanding has to be sidelined. But there's obviously others of our understanding. We understand the nature of God. We understand who Jesus is. We understand his sacrifice on the cross. We understand his death on our behalf. We understand those things by God's enablement. So those things that align with what God's truth says, that Solomon's not saying just to shelve your brain in its entirety and depend upon God. No, he's not saying that. But he is asking to check, put into check your own understanding and guard it and compare it to what God's word has to say. I can't help but think of any number of church denominations that have gone askew on this point. The movement started many decades ago, the the, the desire of churches to be relevant, to be welcoming, to be um, open to people that come in. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it takes the form of so many churches that have said basically, well, you know, hell isn't very popular today. We're, we're not just not going to talk about it. We're just going to write it out of our doctrinal statement. Or we're not going to talk about some sins that you know, are just too popular or too prominent in our... And they've made accommodations to the point where they have sidelined a lot of biblical truth. And their churches then, well, they don't even believe that the Word of God is the Word of God anymore. It's just, you know, fun stories or cute little sayings that they adhere to. That's leaning on your own understanding, trying to appeal, trying to welcome, and then you forsake truth. You forsake rock-bottom reality. That's what's to be avoided. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That seems to be a pretty objective and absolute statement. In all your ways. And so you're maybe are prone to say, how, how can I get a hold of all of my ways? Is that the condition for God's guidance? All of my ways, I have to be completely dedicated. I have to be overwhelmingly, single-handedly minded in my focus upon God. Is that the condition for Him guiding and directing? In all my ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make my path straight? I think because... Solomon understands through God's inspiration that he's writing to sinful people in a sinful world with sinful natures, that he's not making accommodations, nor am I making accommodations, but I'm asking this question. When you look in your heart and ask yourself that question, am I acknowledging him in all my ways? Ask yourself these questions. Am I consciously rejecting what I know to be true? Am I willingly defying God with unbelief? We can answer those questions. We can do that introspection. And we can just ask for God's enablement to bring to our mind, well, where is it that I am consciously rejecting Almighty God? Where am I operating in unbelief? And He will reveal that and make then the way for his guidance in our life. Solomon says to his son, walk rightly with God by valuing God's word. Walk rightly with God by truly trusting in him. Thirdly, walk rightly with God by a humble, reverent life. Verses 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is another way to define do not, or lean, do not lean on your own understanding. What does that look like? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you've got it all figured out. Don't think that, that your perspective of life is what is true. What is God's perspective of life? What does he have to say about the situation that you find yourself in? 
Fear the Lord. There's that word that is used throughout this wonderful book of Proverbs. Fear the Lord. Respect the Lord. Submit to the Lord. Honor the Lord. Understand the Lord. And then turn away from evil. Cause and effect. Honoring, worshiping, respecting the Lord causes us to turn away from evil. We can't do both at the same time. And it will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The word flesh is actually literally translated navel. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew nomenclature, the navel was just symbolic of the whole body. It was just another way of saying everything about you. So this perspective will bring healing to your flesh. It will bring healing to your whole body and refreshment to your bones. Cause and effect. So walk rightly with God with a humble and reverent life. Walk rightly with God in regard to your possessions. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here is another expression of what it means to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You will honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with new wine. I love the stories of missionaries who have ventured out in faith on an adventure that they weren't really promised success in, but they were following God's leading. And they went with the resources that they had, committing them to the Lord, committing them to the, God's work, committing themselves to God's service, and how God provided for them. I'm thinking of a number of people. Brother Andrew came to mind as I was preparing. He was a Bible smuggler when the Iron Curtain was erected in Eastern Europe, and he would take Bibles in his luggage, on his person, across the border, and time after time after time, he wouldn't be stopped, he wouldn't be inspected, he would get to deliver those Bibles to Christian communities in oppressed lands. Or Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, she started orphanages with bare bones, with nothing. We would say, that's foolish. No, she was walking by faith and realized God's providence. She was honoring the Lord with the wealth that she had, which in human standards was pretty small, but given into the right hands, produced an incredible legacy of benevolence and salvations to orphans in India. It's not that oh, we need to be wealthy before we can honor the Lord with our wealth. No, no, it's not just uh, delegated to people with certain bank account balances. It's all of us, and it's not just our physical resource. It's our talents. It's our gifts. It's what we have that God has given to us, to us, which is everything. Can we honor the Lord with that? The word honor is also translated. It's also the word given for sacrifice. What can we sacrifice with our wealth, with what we have, with what God has given to us? with the first fruits of all of our produce. That's language that every Hebrew would be very familiar with. As they went out to their fields and harvested whatever they were growing, they would bring the first of that harvest and offer it as an offering at the temple or the tabernacle or the synagogue. When the grapes were brought to the wine press, the first juice that ran out of the press, the new wine, it was then given as an offering, first fruits. That's what is meant by first fruits. Um, the New Testament would say, on the first day of the week, lay up for yourself, decide for yourself what kind of offering you will bring. The first thing that we do is the New Testament admonition, the same idea as first fruits. Do it first, because if it's put off until last, it might not get done. And it might not be significant. Do it first. So rightly respond to God with regard to your possessions. The second main way of dividing this chapter um, comes or starts in verse 11, which I've entitled, 
Um, my son, receive the hard lessons of wisdom. Receive the hard lessons of wisdom. Receive correction from God with the right heart. Verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The word discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. can also be translated as correction or instruction. Don't despise. Don't walk away from. Don't neglect. Don't avoid. How do you know if you're being disciplined by God? That's a good question, isn't it? You know, we're left sometimes to interpret life's circumstances. And often... At least my mindset goes when hardship comes, when pain comes, the first thing or one of the first things I think of is, oh, is this the Lord's discipline? Am I being chastised? Am I being corrected? Am I being instructed? What do I need to learn? And those are good questions to ask. But I think that God is good enough, and from what I know of my relationship with him, when he has specifically and intentionally disciplined me, I know it. I know it. My spirit communes with God's spirit, and there is a communication that takes place that I really don't have to double-guess it. I know if God is speaking to me. I know if there's something that I need to learn in a certain situation or a certain circumstance that I find myself in. And I think God will do that to all of his children. That's why he says the Lord reproves those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. What father would discipline a son without telling him this is the reason? Here are the, the rationales for my behavior. You have a timeout or whatever you choose, method you use for discipline your children, you want them to know cause and effect. It is senseless, really, if there isn't that knowledge, that information. So God is gracious, and he'll tell us, I believe, he'll communicate to us. But understand this, brother and sister, if you are a believer here this morning, whatever happens in your life, don't interpret it as God's anger. Because God is not angry with you. That anger, his wrath, was placed upon Christ on the cross. He bore it for us. God will never be angry with you or with me. That doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us. But he doesn't discipline us out of anger. He is not mad with you or me. Please realize and remember that. My son, receive correction from the God with the right heart. Secondly, receive the wonderful benefits of God's correction. Verse 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the, for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver. And her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. In her ways... Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Isn't that a wonderful description of someone in a position of blessing from God? My goodness, they find wisdom, and they value it. They have God's understanding, and they gain from it. And it's more valuable than riches of gold or silver. And long life, influential, significant life is in their hands. And their ways are pleasantness, their paths are peace. Time would prevent me from looking at popular culture and the cries that are exhibited from people in song, in movies, in poetry, in books, in novels, they cry out, where do I find peace? Where do I find comfort? Where do I find satisfaction? Where do I find meaning? Here. Here. It's found in the wisdom of God. Pursue God. Pursue Him. And you will find the answers to those heartfelt questions. Thirdly, 
The third category of information from this chapter starts in verse 19. My son, value wise living before God and man. Value wise living. Understand the Creator and His wisdom. Understand our wise Creator. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding. He established the heavens by his knowledge. The deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. When I first read that, I thought, why does Solomon go back to creation? Why does he identify now God again as creator? What's the significance of that? And I remember the story of Job. Job went through his suffering his friends, his wife came and gave him bad advice. He pursued through it, and he still had some questions. He wasn't settled. He had some questions for God. And finally, God shows up. And remember the first question that God asked Job? Where were you, my friend, when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I scooped out the deep? It was going back to God's creative effort. And Job was challenging God's creation. He was challenging the order of God and challenging that. And God had to straighten him out. I'm the creator. You weren't a part of it. You're going to tell the potter how to make the clay? You're going to tell the potter how to make the pot? So here, I think Solomon is doing the same thing. By the, the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. Understanding, he established the heavens. His knowledge broke the deeps open. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, those three words are repeated throughout the whole book of Proverbs. Pursue these three things, but know their source. Know where they come from. Know where to look for them. Don't look at Oprah. Don't look at popular culture. Don't look at the most popular podcast. Look at the God of creation. If you want to find the answers to these questions, you have to know where to look. Look at the right place. Look at the creator. Second, my son value wise living before God and man by giving attention to God's wisdom, verse 21 and 22. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be to you life for your soul and adornment for your neck. You've heard, he's kind of repeating same things. Put them around your neck, an adornment for your soul. Hang on to these. Don't lose sight of them. Know where wise living comes from. And then thirdly, walk the, the, walk, the safety of walking in God's wisdom. Verse 23 through 26. When you walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and keep your foot from being caught. The safety of walking in God's wisdom. And fourthly, some lessons from God's wisdom. Verse 27 and 30. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is, when it, it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he has done no harm. Some lessons from life, how it looks to walk in God's wisdom. And lastly, the benefit of a life that loves God's wisdom, verse 31 through 35. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace. I love that last verse. The wise will inherit honor. Again, this goes back, I think, to the promise of long life and many days of not being so much in length but of influence. The wise person will inherit significant influence in their life. If you were to visit Oxford, England today, in the central square, there's a picture of it. There is a monument to three men. The men are Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cranmer. 
The year was 1555. It was 35, almost 40 years after Luther had nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And the Reformation that had started in Germany and Holland and other places had spread quite rapidly to England because there were people there that were reforming before Luther, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale amongst others. So the reformation of the church in England was happening, but it gained a lot of steam and a lot of progress after Luther. And so the reformers came to England and the church was in desperate need of reforming. It was corrupt, it was political, much like Rome. And so by the time these men became bishops, Nicholas Ridley was bishop in London and Hugh Latimer was bishop of Worcestershire. Mary Tudor was the ruling monarch in England. She was the daughter of Henry VIII, uh, also had the infamous title of Bloody Mary. She sat on the throne and she, because she was the head of the church, as all monarchs are in England, then it was a very, very political and legitimate head of the church, unlike today. But she wanted to align the Church of England back with Rome. The, church, the Anglican Church before her, under her father, had pretty much separated from Rome, but she had an attraction to realign with Rome. And one of the ways that she sought to do that was to persecute the reformers. And she did that through heresy trials and through burning heretics at the stake. 280 reformers are known, known and recorded as being martyrs under her rule. These two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were two bishops who were reformers at heart and accepted many of the teachings of the Protestants in Germany. Under their trial, what was their main crime? What was their main object of, of, of heresy? They refused to say that the Eucharist, the elements of the Lord's Supper, were the actual body and blood of Christ. They, with Luther, said that there's a spiritual presence there, but not a literal presence there. That was heresy. That couldn't stand because it went against Rome's teaching of transubstantiation. So they were offered to recant. They did not. So their sentence was to be burned at the stake. A stake in the center of the city of Oxford then was erected. They were tied to it both on either side of the stake and a fire was lit. And as the fire was lit, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells the story that Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. In the church tower adjacent to the city square, there was a cell where Thomas Cranmer was being held. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest Anglican priest in the Anglican church. He too had, had promoted Protestant ideas and he was forced to watch the burning of his friends Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Struck with fear and intimidation, he signed a letter of recantation, recanting his views and aligning himself again with Rome. That did not satisfy Mary. She still said his crime deserved death. He was allowed one last sermon before the sentence was brought to bear. And he preached a prepared sermon. He just read it. But then when he finished, he deviated from the prepared texts and said, brothers and sisters, I no longer believe this. I want to recant my recantation. I want to align myself again with the reformers. I believe that it's true what they say, and here I stand, I can do no other. He was not well received. He was brought out to the stake and tied to it. Wood was brought in and lit. And the story is told 
that he looked at his right hand and he felt such disdain for his right hand. It was the hand that signed the original recantation document. He had such disdain for his hand, he held his hand down in the flames so it would burn first before he succumbed to the flames. How do these three men affect us today? Names that you might not have been aware of, but the reformed movement in England did not die. It continued. And soon, a group of reformers called the Protestants arose. They took the Reformation even further and continued to reform the English church. And there was a small group of, of, of Puritans that were led by a man uh, named John Bradford, who in his community and in his church realized that there wasn't the freedoms in England anymore that availed themselves to what they wanted to do with their religion and their faith in Christ. So he moved to Holland, where they had more freedoms of expression and freedoms of worship. But two, there they found that they were limited. So he commissioned a ride on a boat called the Mayflower, and the pilgrims came to New England and landed in Massachusetts and started the Plymouth Colony. Now you know the rest of the story. The freedom that they wanted to establish in the New World was enshrined in our Constitution. 200 years later, we enjoy the benefits today of what these men stood for, what the Puritans fought for, what the Puritans brought to this New World with them, we are the recipients of that today. The wise will inherit honor. Does the world have anything to offer that compares? Is the world's solution to man's problems so convincing that we need to adhere to them? No. No. My son, do not forget God's word. Let your hearts keep his commandments. Let's pray together. God, we stand this morning as your children in a place that we pray that your presence fills. Thank you that your word speaks truth to us. Thank you that your word and your spirit are alive and active and working in us and through us. I pray for not just myself, but those gathered here, that our exposure to your word this morning, our understanding of what wise living is all about, where we seek it, where we find it, how we can benefit from it, and ultimately how you are glorified by, by it, would resonate in our hearts today. To those ends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.